Section 12 of A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by a Gentleman on His Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by Sarah Scott. The History of Lady Mary Jones, Part 2. When Lady Mary was in her twentieth year, Lady Sheerness was seized with a lingering but incurable disorder. It made little alteration in her mind. In this melancholy situation she applied to cards and company to keep up her spirits as assiduously as she had done during her better health. She was incapable indeed of going so much abroad, but her acquaintance who still found her house agreeable applauded their charity in attending her at home cards even employed the morning for fear any intermission of visitors should leave her a moment's time for reflection in this manner she passed the short remainder of her life without one thought of that which was to come her acquaintance for i cannot call them as they did themselves friends were particularly careful to avoid every subject that might remind her of death at night she procured sleep by laudanum and from the time she rose she took care not to have leisure to think even at meals she constantly engaged company, lest her niece's conversation should not prove sufficient to dissipate her thoughts. Every quack who proposed curing what was incurable was applied to, and she was buoyed up with successive hopes of approaching relief. She grew at last so weak that, unable even to perform her part at the card-table, Lady Mary was obliged to deal, hold her cards, and sort them for her, while she could just make them out one by one and drop them on the table whist and quadrille became too laborious to her weakened intellects but loo supplied their places and continued her amusement to the last as reason or memory were not necessary qualifications to play at it her acquaintances she found at length began to absent themselves but she reanimated their charity by making frequent entertainments for them and was reduced to order genteel suppers to enliven the evening when she herself was obliged to retire to her bed Though it was for a considerable time doubtful whether she should live till morning, it was no damp to the spirits of any of the company from which she had withdrawn, except to Lady Mary, who with an aching heart was obliged to preside every evening at the table and to share their unfeeling mirth till two or three o'clock in the morning. She was greatly afflicted with the thought of her aunt's approaching death, whose indulgence to her, however blamable, had made a deep impression on her heart. As this gave a more serious turn to her mind, she could not see Lady Sheerness's great insensibility to what must happen after death without much concern. The great care that was taken to rob her of leisure, to reflect on matters of such high importance, shocked her extremely, and she was disgusted with the behaviour of those she called her friends, who she plainly perceived would have fallen into total neglect of her had she not found means to render her house more amusing to them than any into which they could enter. She now saw that friendship existed not without esteem, and that pleasurable connections would break at the time they were most wanted. This sort of life continued till one evening Lady Sheerness was seized with a fainting fit at the card-table, and being carried to her bed, in half an hour departed to a world of which she had never thought, and for which she was totally unprepared. As Lady Mary was not able to return to the company, they in decency, not in affliction, retired. Having long expected this event, her grief was greater than her surprise. She sent for the gentleman who she knew was her aunt's executor, that her will might be opened and necessary directions given for the funeral. 
Lady Mary had no doubt of succeeding to an easy fortune, and when the will was read it confirmed her in that supposition by appointing her sole heiress. That the executor told her he feared she would find no inheritance. The will was made on her first coming to Lady Sheerness, when there was some remains of the money her lord had left her, but he was well convinced it had since been not only entirely expended, but considerable debts incurred. This account was soon proved true by the demands of numerous creditors. Lady Mary gave up all her aunt's effects, which fell short of the debts, and remained herself in the same destitute condition from which Lady Sheerness had rescued her. This was a very severe shock. She had seen sufficient proof of the little real friendship to be found in such fashionable connections as she had been engaged in, to know that she had nothing to hope from any of her acquaintance. Her father had been at variance with most of his relations, and Lady Sheerness had kept up the quarrel. She had therefore little expectation of assistance from them in the only wish she could form, which was to obtain a pension from the government, whereto her rank seemed to entitle her. She saw no resource but in the pride of some insolent woman who would like to have a person of her quality dependent on her, a prospect far worse than death, or possibly good nature might procure her a reception among some of her acquaintance, but as she had nothing even to answer her personal expenses, how soon would they grow weary of so chargeable a visitor? While she was oppressed with these reflections, and had nothing before her eyes but the gloomy prospect of extreme distress, she received a message from Lady Brumpton, who waited in her equipage at the door, desiring to be admitted to see her, for Lady Mary had given a general order to be denied, being unfit to see company, and unwilling to be exposed to the insulting condolence of many whose envy at the splendour in which she had lived, and the more than common regard that had usually been shown her, would have come merely to enjoy the triumph they felt on her present humiliation. Lady Brompton was widow to Lady Mary's half-brother. She had been a private gentlewoman of good family but small fortune, by marrying whom her lord had given such offence to his father that he would never after admit him to his presence. Lady Sheerness had shown the same resentment, and there no longer subsisted any communication between the families. Lord Brompton had been dead about three years and left no children. His widow was still a fine woman. She was by nature generous and humane, her temper perfectly good, her understanding admirable. She had been educated with great care, was very accomplished, had read a great deal, and with excellent taste. She had great quickness of parts, and a very uncommon share of wit. Her beauty first gained her much admiration, but when she was better known, the charms of her understanding seemed to eclipse those of her person. Her conversation was generally courted, her wit and learning were the perpetual subjects of panegyric in verse and prose, which unhappily served to increase her only failing, vanity. She sought to be admired for various merits. To recommend her person she studied dress and went to considerable expense in ornaments. To show her taste, she distinguished herself by the elegance of her house, furniture, and equipage. To prove her fondness for literature, she collected a considerable library, and to show that all her esteem was not engrossed by the learned dead, she caressed all living geniuses. All were welcome to her house, from the ragged philosopher to the rhyming peer, but while she only exchanged adulation with the latter, she generously relieved the necessities of the former. She aimed at making her house a little academy. All the arts and sciences were there discussed, and none dared to enter who did not think themselves qualified to shine, 
and partake of the lustre which was diffused around this assembly. Though encircled by science and flattery, Lady Mary's distress reached Lady Bumpton's ears and brought her to that young lady's door, who was surprised at the unexpected visit, but could not refuse her admittance. Lady Brumpton began by apologizing for her intrusion, but excused herself on the great desire she had of being acquainted with so near a relation of her lord's, who, as she was too young to have any share in the unhappy divisions in the family, she was persuaded was free from those ill-grounded resentments which the malice and impertinence of tale-bearers are always watchful to improve and when she considered herself as the first occasion of the quarrel she thought it her duty in regard to her deceased lord's memory to offer that protection his sister might justly demand from her and which her youth rendered necessary lady mary was charmed with the politeness of lady brumpton's address but still more with the generosity of her behaviour in seeking her out at a time when so many were diligent to avoid her the acknowledgments she made for the favour done her spoke as much in her recommendation as her person. Lady Brumpton, after some conversation, told her she had a request to make, to which she could not well suffer a denial. This was no other than that she would leave that melancholy house and make hers the place of her fixed abode, for as by Lord Brumpton's will he had bequeathed her his whole fortune, she should not enjoy it with peace of mind, if his sister did not share in the possession." This very agreeable invitation filled Lady Mary with joy and surprise. She made a proper return to Lady Brumpton for her generosity, and they agreed that Lady Mary should remove to her house the next day. When Lady Mary was left alone to reflect on this unexpected piece of good fortune, and considered the distress she had been in but two hours before, and from which she was now so happily delivered, when she reflected on the many calamities wherewith from her childhood she had been threatened, and by what various means she had been saved so often from ruin, she could not forbear thinking that she was indeed the care of that being who had hitherto employed so little of her thoughts. Such frequent mercies as she had received, sometimes in being preserved from the fatal consequences of her own follies, at others from the unavoidable distresses to which she had been exposed, awakened in her mind a lively gratitude to the supreme disposer of all human events. The poor consolations to which her aunt had been reduced in the melancholy conclusion of her life showed her that happiness did not consist in dissipation, nor in tumultuous pleasures, and could alone be found in something which every age and every condition might enjoy. Reason seemed this source of perpetual content, and she fancied that alone would afford a satisfaction suitable to every state of mind and body. Some degree of religion she imagined necessary, and that to perform the duties it required was requisite to our peace. But the extent of true religion she had never considered, though her great good fortune told her that she ought to be thankful for the blessings conferred, and not distrust the care of providence of which she had received such signal proofs. She had often heard Lady Brumpton ridiculed under the appellation of a genius and a learned lady, but when she recollected who those persons were, no other than the open professors of folly, it did not prejudice that lady in her opinion, but rather raised her expectation of being introduced into a superior race of beings, for whose conversation she knew herself unqualified, but from whom she hoped for some improvement to her understanding, too long neglected. In this disposition of mind Lady Brumpton found her at the hour that she had appointed to fetch her. They went directly into Lady Brumpton's dressing-room, 
who presented Lady Mary with a settlement she had prepared of a hundred pounds a year, which she begged her to accept for her clothes, and desired that whenever she found it insufficient she would draw on her for more. She at the same time made her the first payment. Lady Mary, now entered into a new set of company, frequently found herself entirely at a loss, for she was so totally unacquainted with the subjects of their discourse that she understood them almost as little as if they had talked another language. She told Lady Brompton how much she was concerned at her own ignorance, and begged she would give her some directions that she should read. That lady, whose chief aim was to shine, recommended to her the things most likely to fall into conversation, that she might be qualified to bear her part in it. Lady Mary took her advice and read some moral essays, just published, then a new play, after that the history of one short period, and ended with a volume of sermons, then much in fashion. When she began to examine what she had acquired by her studies, she found such a confusion in her memory, where a historical anecdote was crowded by a moral sentiment and a scrap of a play interwoven into a sermon, that she determined to discontinue that miscellaneous reading, and begin a regular and improving course, leaving to others the privilege of sitting in judgment on every new production. In this situation, Lady Mary continued some years, without any mortification except what she felt from seeing the consequences of Lady Brompton's too great vanity. It led her into expenses, which, though they did not considerably impair her fortune, yet so far straightened it that she frequently had not power to indulge the generosity of her mind, where it would have done her honour, and have yielded her solid satisfaction. The adulation which she received with too much visible complacency inspired her with such an opinion of herself as led her to despise those of less shining qualities, and not to treat any with proper civility whom she had not some particular desire to please, which often gave severe pangs to bashful merit, and called her real superiority in question, for those who observed so great a weakness were tempted to believe her understanding rather glittering than solid. The desire of attracting to her house every person who had gained a reputation for genius occasioned many to be admitted whose acquaintance were a disgrace to her, and who artfully taking advantage of her weakness by excess of flattery, found means of imposing on her to any degree they pleased. The turn of conversation at her house was ridiculed in every other company by people who appeared most desirous of being in her parties and indeed it was capable of being so the extreme endeavour to shine took off from that ease in conversation which is its greatest charm every person was like a bent bow ready to shoot forth an arrow which had no sooner darted to the other side of the room than it fell to the ground and the next person picked it up and made a new shot with it like the brisk lightning in the rehearsal they gave flash for flash and they were continually striving whose wit should go off with the greatest report Lady Mary, who had naturally a great deal of vivacity and a sufficient share of wit, made no bad figure in the brilliant assembly, for though she perceived an absurdity in these mock skirmishes of genius, yet she thought proper to conform to her company, but saw plainly that a sprightly look and lively elocution made the chief merit of the best bon mots that were uttered among them. After she had spent about five years with Lady Brumpton, this lady was seized with a nervous fever, which all the art of her physicians could not entirely conquer. Her spirits were extremely affected, and her friends decreased in their attentions as her vivacity decayed. She had indeed always been superior to her company in every requisite to please and entertain. Therefore, when she could not bear her part, the conversations flagged. They dwindled from something like wit into oddity, and then sunk into dullness. She was no longer equally qualified to please or to be pleased. 
Her mind was not at unison with shallow gestures, and therefore they could make no harmony. Her disorder wore her extremely, and turned to an atrophy. In that gradual decay she often told Lady Mary she was awakened from a dream of vanity. She saw how much a desire to gain the applause of a few people had made her forget the more necessary aim of obtaining the approbation of her creator. She had indeed no criminal actions to lay to her charge, but how should she? Vanity preserved her from doing anything which she imagined would expose her to censure. She had done some things commendable, but she feared the desire of being commended was part of her motive. The humility and calmness of a true Christian disposition had appeared to her meanness of spirit or affectation, and a religious life as the extremest dullness. But now too late she saw her error, and was sensible she had never been in the path of happiness. She had not erred from want of knowledge, but from the strong impulse of vanity which led her to neglect it. But sickness, by lowering her spirits, had taken away the false glare which dazzled her eyes and restored her to her sight. Lady Brompton was sensible of her approaching death some weeks before she expired, and was perfectly resigned. Lady Mary had a second time the melancholy office of closing the eyes of a benefactress and relation whom she sincerely loved. Lady Brompton, to remove from her any anxiety on her own account, acquainted her, as soon as her disease became desperate, that she had bequeathed her ten thousand pounds and all her plate and jewels. Lady Mary found this information true, and received the sum. She was tenderly concerned for the loss of so good a friend, and by the various circumstances of her life and the many blessings bestowed on her, had a heart so touched with the greatness of divine mercy, that her mind took a more serious turn than common, and tired of the multitude in which she had so long lived. She was seeking for a retirement when she met Mrs. Morgan and Miss Mansell at Tunbridge, and, as I've already told you, came hither with them. Mrs. Maynard was not a little wearied with so long a narrative, and therefore did not continue much longer with us, but Lamont and I remained in the park till dinner. In the afternoon the ladies proposed we should go upon the water, a scheme very agreeable to us all. Some of the inhabitants of the other community were of the party. We got into a very neat boat, of a size sufficient to contain a large company, and which was rowed by the servants of the family. We went about three miles up the river with great pleasure, and landed just by a neat house where we understood we were to drink tea. The mistress of it received us with great joy, and told the ladies she had longed to see them, their young folks having quite finished her house, which she begged leave to show us. Its extreme neatness rendered it an object worthy of observation, and I was particularly attentive, as its size suiting my plan of life, I determined to copy it. The rooms were neither large nor numerous but most of them hung with paper and prettily adorned. There were several very good drawings framed with shelves, elegantly put together, and a couple of cabinets designed for use, but they became ornamental by being painted and seaweeds stuck thereon, which by their variety and the happy disposition of them rendered the doors and each of the drawers a distinct landscape. Many other little pieces of furniture were by the same art made very pretty and curious. I learned in a whisper from Mrs. Maynard that this gentlewoman was widow to the late minister of the parish, and was left at his death with five small children in very bad circumstances. The ladies of Millennium Hall immediately raised her drooping spirits, settled an income upon her, took this house, furnished it, and lent her some of their girls, to assist in making up the furniture and decorating it according to the good woman's taste. She carried us into her little garden that was neat to an excess and filled with flowers. 
which she found some of her children tying up and putting in order while the younger were playing about, all dressed with the same exact neatness as herself. When we had performed this little progress, we found tea ready, and spent the afternoon with greater pleasure, for observing the high gratification which this visit seemed to afford the mistress of the house. In the room where we sat was a bookcase well stocked. My curiosity was great to see what it contained, and one of the ladies to whom I mentioned it indulged me by opening it herself and looking at some of the books. I found they consisted of some excellent treatises of divinity, several little things published for the use of children, and calculated to instill piety and knowledge into their infant minds, with a collection of our best periodical papers for the amusement of lighter hours. Most of these books, I found, were Miss Mansell's presses. The fineness of the evening made our return very delightful, and we had time for a little concert before supper. The next morning I called up Lamont very early, and reminded the housekeeper of her promise of showing us the schools, which she readily performing, conducted us first to a very large cottage, or rather five or six cottages laid together. Here we found about fifty girls, clad in a very neat uniform and perfectly clean, already seated at their respective businesses, some writing, others casting accounts, some learning lessons by heart, several employed in various sorts of needlework, a few spinning, and others knitting, with two schoolmistresses to inspect them. The schoolroom was very large and perfectly clean. The forms and chairs they sat on were of wood as white as possible. On shelves were wooden bowls and trenchers equally white, and shining pewter and brass seemed the ornaments of one side of the room, while pieces of the children's work of various kinds decorated the other, little samples of their performances being thus exhibited as encouragement to their ingenuity. I asked many questions as to their education, and learned that they are bred up in the strictest piety, the ladies by various schemes and many little compositions of their own, endeavour to inculcate the purest principles in their tender minds. They all by turns exercise themselves in the several employments which we saw going forward, that they may have various means of gaining their subsistence, in case any accident should deprive them of the power of pursuing any particular part of their business. The ladies watch their geniuses with great care, and breeding them up to those things which seem most suitable to the turn of their minds. When any are designed for service, they are taught the business of the place they are best fitted for by coming down to the hall and performing the necessary offices under the direction of the excellent servants there. A very large kitchen garden belongs to the house, which is divided into as many parts as there are scholars. To weed and keep this in order is made their principal recreation, and by the notice taken of it they are taught to vie with each other, which shall best acquit themselves, so that perhaps never was a garden so neat. They likewise have no small share in keeping those at the hall in order, and the grotto and seats are chiefly their workmanship. I gave them due praise upon their performances at the clergyman's widows, and delighted two of them very much by my admiration of a little arbour, which they had there planted with woodbines and other sweet shrubs. In their own garden they are allowed the indulgence of any little whim, which takes not up too much room, and it is pretty to see their little seats, their arbours and beds of flowers according to their several tastes. As soon as school breaks up, they run with as much eagerness and joy to their garden as other children do to their childish sports, and their highest pleasure is the approbation their patronesses give their performances. They likewise take it by turns to do the business of the house, and emulation excites them to a cleanliness which could not by any other means be preserved. From this school we went to one instituted for boys, 
which consisted of about half the number and most of them small as they are dismissed to labor as soon as they are able to perform any work except incapacitated by ill health this is instituted on much the same principles as the other and every boy of five years old has his little spade and rake which he is taught to exercise we returned from our little tour in time enough for prayers with minds well prepared for them by the view of such noble fruits of real piety indeed the steward who reads them does it with such extreme propriety and such humble and sincere devotion as is alone sufficient to fix the attention and warm the hearts of his hearers after breakfast was over we got mrs maynard to accompany us into the garden she in complaisance to us abstaining while we were at the hall from her share in the daily visits the ladies pay to their several institutions and to the poor and sick in their village their employments are great but their days are proportionable for they are always up by five o'clock and by their example the people in the village rise equally early at that hour one sees them all engaged in their several businesses with an assiduity which in other places is not awakened till much later i called on mrs maynard to continue her task which without any previous ceremony she did as follows End of section twelve read by sandra